The issues that matter most, right here. The Drew Mariani Show. On Relevant Radio. COVID cases keep rising to record highs. City services are feeling the strain. In Cincinnati, the mayor declared a state of emergency after more than two dozen firefighters came down with COVID, with those remaining forced to work overtime. Nobody can recall a time in recent history within the last almost 50 years where firefighters have been forced to stay beyond their normal hours. Nationwide, COVID cases are rising so fast, it's estimated more than three Americans are testing positive every second. 15 states, plus D.C. and Puerto Rico, are averaging more daily cases than ever. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Yeah, and I'm one of those cases. Good afternoon and welcome. I uh, would ask for your prayers as I start today's program. I was talking with my producer, Maggie, uh, before we went to air here, uh, just about about this COVID. It is so, uh, it is so strange, isn't it? It's so weird. You know, I have seemed to have survived it for such a long bout, and both vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals are, are getting COVID. I actually tested, got tested yesterday. My test results came back, and I tested positive. Uh, for COVID-19. So I'm a little bit under the weather. I am broadcasting remotely. If if you're wondering, I'm not around anybody else. I actually have a remote studio today that I'm broadcasting out of. Uh, but I could use uh, your prayers. Um, and, and I'm not alone. I, I know that many, many of you are going through this or your loved ones are. Uh, you know, I, I look at it spiritually too in some respects. I'll just throw this out to you. Um, we can talk about you know, the causes, we can talk about the origins, we can talk about the side effects, we can talk about the ethics. There's a lot of things to get into on, on COVID all the time, right? But it's just spiritually speaking, you know, I, I look at it as an opportunity to really offer up my suffering. I, I shared the other day, a, a woman called me who is pregnant with her sixth child and her husband was running around on her strip clubs. And, um, uh, she found out because of an Uber app that he had and he denied it. And eventually, you know, she left him the day after Christmas. Um, and she wrote to me really distraught. And I, and I told her that I would offer my suffering. I'd unite it to that of our Lord's on the cross. It makes it meritorious, makes it redemptive and, um, call redemptive. And, and, and I'll pray for her and I'm going to pray for you too. In about an hour, we'll pray the chapel together. I'm going to slog through this. I should, probably should be in bed resting because I'm, I'm feeling worse than I did yesterday. But um, I, I, I want to be here with you, and I enjoy talking with you, and I know we can do this together. But, uh, you know, I just want to say to anyone who's suffering right now, think about that. I mean, don't waste this opportunity to suffer. Suffer well. And I know it's something that's not often heard, not often thought about, and uh, it might be the first time you're hearing about it. Maybe I'll expand on it a little bit later. Maybe we could talk more about the value of suffering and why why it is meritorious, you know, why there is a particular power. And you take a look at the great mystics, the great saints, they all suffered. No one was immune for it, from it. But boy, uh, even St. Faustina, after having glimpsed heaven, after seeing the afterlife, after having a, a triune experience being brought up before the Trinity, um, she wanted to suffer. She was willing to suffer. All the martyrdoms of all the martyrs of the world if it meant moving just one degree closer to God in heaven. I mean, that's how much she'd be willing to do it. I mean, that's the intensity of of the, uh, the eternal experience, but th- that's a whole other issue. And we can talk more about that. I had long ye- a long conversation yesterday with Dr. Robert Tabali about things related to COVID. If you missed it, and I would encourage you to go listen to it. Um, you can listen to it on our podcast. In fact, there's a new vaccine coming out. A lot of, I have a friend who does not want to get vaccinated because of ethical concerns. He's concerned, you know, uh, about some of the, um, 
some of the ethics behind it. I won't go into it. We've had these discussions in the past. But Novavax is uh, an ethical alternative, and that's coming out. Dr. Dabali talked about that. We'll see if it gets a green light here in the state. I believe right now it's before the the FDA. I uh, hope it is. You might want that as your booster if you've been vaccinated or there's some alternatives. But a great conversation. It was, Maggie, was it our last hour yesterday? you got to help me. Uh, last hour. Last hour. See, probably... COVID fog, yeah, Maggie, <laughs> it's creeping in, can't remember, but you know, my wife will ask me when I get off the air, oh, what you talk about today, and sometimes I can't even tell her, uh, you know, it's like taking a final exam, you know, and it's like three hours of heavy concentration, and you're like, man, you just, you just got to clear your head, but uh, hour three with Dr. Dabali, you'll like it, um, speaking of COVID, just one other issue here, John Hopkins, uh, Johns Hopkins University, uh, They reported that more than a million new cases of COVID were reported yesterday. Yesterday. That's the highest single number since the pandemic began in 2020. I I just, I want to underline that. You know, I remember when Joe Biden was running for president, he said he was going to defeat the pandemic. He's going to get us out of this dark winter, right? There was this whole mantra about, you know, defeating COVID. Yesterday, the highest single day number since the pandemic began. Now, I'm not throwing stones at Joe. I I don't know if any president could have remedied this, and I'll I'll give you my personal take. I'm not an epidemiologist, but I think we're going to see more variants. I don't think we're out of the woods. I think Omicron is going to come and go. I think people have immunity to that. I think there'll be some other variation. So I think we need to strap on our belts and really you know, look at the therapeutics and, and how we're going to handle this moving forward. The U.S. is also, believe it or not, having its highest seven-day average of daily new cases. And I guess I'm one of those, and so was my wife. According to CNBC, there could be a, a different explanation for it, though. Uh, they claim New Year's Eve fell on a Friday. A lot of states are reporting, a lot of those you know reporting sites in those states were closed, and states don't report over the weekend. So it could be a culmination of several days of data. So maybe the numbers aren't quite as high for those seven days, but still a lot more cases than any previous Monday reported. And then you heard yesterday the CDC, you know, cut the recommended time for isolation down to five days. And that's primarily an economic concern. I just want to say to you, look, if you do have COVID, do yourself a favor. Don't go out, you know, do someone else a favor. Don't go out. All right. It's this, this Omicron variant is so highly contagious. And I think about it because, you know, my wife had it. I tested negative initially, the first run. And I'm thinking, well, after I tested negative, I thought I was in the clear. You know, I ran to the store to get her something, did this, did that. And I'm thinking, well, how many people did I potentially, possibly expose? Even though my wife was, um, you know, uh, sick, I had a mask and I had gone out and come back. Uh, I was negative. I should have been fine. But, you know, just stay home if you can. But. You know, there's talk of a of, a, of another shutdown, uh, and we know the impact that has on the country, right? According to the New York Times, it's not going to be a shutdown by the government again. Instead, it's going to, you know, it's just going to be because so many are sick. I don't think the governments are going to shut down. I don't. I think they realize what that's done. In, in fact, um, if you've tried to fly or you have somebody who's been trying to get airborne, airlines began canceling flights in such large numbers on Christmas Eve. Why? Lack of crews. People were sick. COVID. And then the problem continued into the new year. I saw a news report, I think it was yesterday. They're paying certain airline pilots triple time, triple time to pick up routes. Can you believe that? Triple time. 
Some are some some are getting double. I mean, it, it's they're doing everything to incentivize, uh, you know, uh, the airline industry to stay open. But you know, when you get sick, there's not a whole lot you can do. Uh, Broadway shows have been canceled because of of uh, outage, you know, outbreaks backstage. Major companies have delayed or entirely jettisoned some return to office plans, and a lot of colleagues are switching back to virtual classes to start the. Uh, you know, to to start the uh, this this the summer, I, I've got a nephew who is uh, in college. You know, he's supposed to go back. He's not. So a lot of the colleges are are now saying, "Hey, you know what? We're delaying the next semester. We're going to delay how we're going to do this." Um, and you know, when colleges switch back to 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 virtual classes, um, I don't know how good that is. You know, I, I, some people really excel in that. Uh, other people don't. But public school teachers in Boston, they've called. And uh, teachers in Chicago just are refusing to show up right now. So um, Cleveland, uh, Detroit, Milwaukee, uh, Newark, New Jersey, they're all part of a growing list of public schools around the country that put off reopening yesterday and they switched to remote instruction or, or maybe both. But with so many people being vaccinated, question is, why are they still sick? Huh? Have you been vaccinated? I'll ask you that. Huh? Have you been vaccinated? And if you are, why are we still getting sick? According to the Associated Press, uh, they did an interview with Lewis Mansky. It's a um, a virologist at the University of Minnesota. And they say it's because the vaccines weren't designed to stop you from getting the virus, just to prevent you from getting seriously ill. So the AP, you know, report says that, you know, getting the two shots of Moderna or Pfizer vaccines or one of the J&J along with boosters, that's the best defense against Omicron which seems to be causing this huge, you know, number and spike right now. All right, let me go to the phones. I see somebody think that I'm fear-mongering. I got to hear what this is all about. Judith in West Bend. Good afternoon. Hi, Drew. Uh, This is Judith Kimmerling. I'm listening to you on the radio. And I'm really concerned about you belaboring the point about, like, Omicron, it's really a cold, and and the um, testing. You know, for COVID-19, I understand you say you have it, but you're not talking about how many people are hospitalized and how many people are dying from this. So um, I'm really concerned because my opinion is God is letting this happen because of the state of the world and the wickedness. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do medical care, but considering these injections don't work, they're killing children, they're killing young men. I think we're not going to be able to stop this until we change our hearts. Well, uh, Judith, I, I agree and I disagree with some of, of what you say. I, I do agree that um, you're right. I, I think, you know, when sin enters the world, so did disorder and so did sickness and so did uh, all the you know, the sin that we currently see. And I think there's a consequence for actions. I don't know if this is necessarily a scourge from God. That that's that's hard to to say. In fact, a little bit later in the week, I'm going to be addressing this whole end time mentality uh, that a lot of people are currently having. As for COVID, um, you know, Omicron being a, a like a cold. Um, I don't know whether my wife had Delta or she had Omicron or, or what variant. Nobody really knows right now. It was uh, epidemiologist and infectious disease doc, Dr. Robert Tabali, who said the symptoms are very much like a cold. Uh, Delta, you know, I think went 
very much into the pulmonary system where um, the Omicron affects some people's upper respiratory or some people have very mild symptoms. And I'm not the only one reporting that. The media is saying that as well. I've been beat up, just to be honest with you, Judith. I mean, whatever I have has felt like an elephant was on my chest. And I have difficulty breathing. I've got incredible fatigue, headache, body ache. So I I know what it's like to go through it. Um, And I see this as an opportunity to be meritorious and to offer it up. I never want to diminish loss right, of life or, or hospitalization just, either. I mean, it's serious, and you know everybody's affected differently. Some people have comorbidities. Exactly. Some people are older. Drew, you know? I, I, I agree, and, and I'm 72, and when I took that first injection and they didn't want to do it, I got so sick. I had mm-hmm. what's called COVID arm. It yep. swole from my shoulder to my elbow. It itched. It made me sick. So I haven't taken a second one. All I'm saying here is that I understand some people are, maybe a lot, yep. but we're not supposed to panic. And I didn't say God sent it. I said yep. he's permitting it to help, yep. I mean, yeah. to go on. So, but my basic I would agree with is, do you, have, do you have statistics on who, how many are being hospitalized and how many are dying i think that's the biggest thing are you dying from this india has or israel has like a hundred percent of people with this and they're not dying or at least they're not dying en masse right well and again judith i guess it depends on the demographic that has a big factor and we got what i just uh said the johns hopkins university reported today a million new cases uh, and as we know, you know, um, because you've got so many people, there are people going to the hospitals. The numbers aren't, this is, the Omicron is not as deadly as, as, the, um, as the Delta variant was. And, you know, so often when, when these viruses, you know, as Dr. Tabali was pointing out and other doctors were pointing out, um, in an attempt to stay alive and in order to perpetuate, uh, when the Spanish flu hit, it killed off its population. Ebola, you take a look at something like that. What happens? It kills the host and then it dies out. So when these things um, begin to mutate, they often do it in order to, to stay alive longer. And sometimes the variants become less deadly. But who knows what lies in store? To your point, all things are within God's will and his permissive will especially. So appreciate it. Let me go to uh, Emmanuel real quick. I'll take one quick last call on this and then i got to change gears here. Uh, Emmanuel, good afternoon. Thank you for calling in. Hey, Drew, long-time listener. Um, Thanks. Yeah, so me and my f- whole family ended up getting uh, COVID from Christmas, and no one was hospitalized. Everybody was just, you know, had a little cold for a day. And everybody seems to be doing good and better. All of us are not vaccinated. And uh, I just wanted to let people know that. And I think the pandemic is almost over because, like, as you said, it's getting a lot milder, and I'm almost positive, but don't quote me. I thought nobody's died from Omicron yet. Yeah, I, I don't. I can't speak to that. I really don't know if there have been any deaths. I'll have to look into that. Maybe Maggie, you can do a quick search and see what we come up with. But um, I, I don't. You know, I don't have that data. I didn't see that. I just know the numbers that are being reported from the CDC or for, for other reporting agencies right now. But Emmanuel, I'm glad you got through it. That was a pretty quick recovery from Christmas. A couple of my kids got it. My wife got it, um, and they're they're all back too. They had a really short little hit. So, uh, Maggie's just Maggie. Open your uh, your mic and share that with everyone if you could. Yeah, it looks like uh, uh, just around Christmas time there were reports that uh, the first death due to Omicron 
was being reported in Texas, uh, an unvaccinated man. Uh, so we got at least one that, that we're aware of. Hey, Emmanuel, thank you. Thank you so much for your... Uh, for your call. I, I do appreciate that. I, I do have to change gears, though. I'll, I'll tell you, Maggie, let me take a quick break. And when we come back, I, I want to share what is an absolutely, uh, I think, a fascinating story, one that you will, uh, without question, I think, find intriguing. Is it possible that the famed and lost mines of Solomon have been discovered? Well, there's been some new archaeological discoveries. And uh, what this dig has uncovered might surprise you. Stay with me. This hour is sponsored by Ave Maria Mutual Funds, where financial goals are aligned with pro-life values and fund decisions are based on investment fundamentals designed to preserve and grow wealth without violating moral beliefs. More information at AveMariaFunds.com. Your daily dose of faith, hope, and charity. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Hey, you're going to love this story. Good afternoon and welcome back. I'm Drew Mariani. Good to be with you. In the world of archaeology, there are certain places that are considered to be prime areas. Places where you get to work only after, after you have years of experience, right? So when you're first starting out, you get sent to the hinterlands, right? You're more than likely not going to make any major finds, upset any existing structures, right? Unless you're extremely lucky. And usually that works. But in the subset of biblical archaeology, that can backfire. Um, there was a, a guy named Erez Ben Yosef. He studied paleomagnetism, uh, changes to the Earth's magnetic field over time. And I think it's a fascinating area of, of study. And he was investigating why there was a spike in the magnetism in the 10th century, right before Christ. I mean, what happened? Why was there a spike in in magnetism, again, in the 10th century before Christ, and doing some digging in an area known as as the Timna Valley in in a desert in southern Israel. And, you know, he and his colleague, they came across some organic material, and they sent it off to a lab at Oxford University. And they said, well, let's get this thing carbonated. We'll see how old it is. What the lab found absolutely astounded them. You know what it dated to? It dated back 3,000 years to the time of David and Solomon. Now, the site has been declared, you know, back, I think, in the early 20th century to be Solomon's Mines, but that was later thrown out. They said, nah, that's, that can't be the craze. So this Ben Yosef's discovery has sent off this great debate. There's, there's been a school of thought for a few decades now that David and Solomon may not have even existed, right? So the, the school is it's convinced that the Israelites were just a tribe of nobodies whose fanciful literature captured the imagination of a certain people and eventually became you know famous throughout the world. That's one mindset. The discovery has completely disrupted that idea. It's totally thrown that out. And I want to talk about what he found and, and what this ultimately reveals with none other than Dr. John Bergsma, a professor of theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville, of course, a senior fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology and a longtime contributor here to this program. Great to have him back with us. Doctor, good afternoon. Absolutely, Drew. Great to be out with you. So I love this story. Came across this, and I thought, ah, you're, of course, the top of the list. Um, there was a move 
and maybe we should start here, uh, you know, among scholars to think that the events of the Old Testament really didn't happen. And you and I, we've talked about the cities of Gomorrah, Sodom, and we've talked about the flood. We've talked about a lot of these things that people think are myth. Uh, when did that start happening? And ultimately, how has it affected, you know, how people think about the Old Testament? Yeah, well, there's been waves of this uh, back and forth, Drew. Like in the late 1800s, there was a, a huge wave of skepticism. And then the pendulum swung the other way, and by the 1940s uh, and 1950s, there was a lot of confidence in the Bible uh, among scholars. And then it started swinging the other way in the late 60s and especially the uh, 70s, and, you know, uh, skepticism became fashionable. So what we have, Drew, is like there's, there's uh, intellectual fashions that blow one way or the other, you know, for, for decades, and, um, and, and people, uh, you know, are inclined to say either the glass is half empty or, the, or half full, right. you know, depending when they look at the, the data that uh, confirms the Bible. So let's talk about this discovery in the Timna Valley. Um, what makes it unique? What do we know? Uh, are these the, the mines of Solomon? Well, it's really fascinating, Drew. There's, there's huge, huge evidence, like enormous amounts, tons of slag from copper smelting, uh, incredible evidence of excavations in search of copper. So uh, a huge um, uh, undertaking was going, out, uh, was going on out in the desert, uh, providing copper for places as far away as Egypt, as far away as Greece. So basically the whole Mediterranean world was, was getting copper and bronze, especially bronze is very valuable, uh, mixed with a little bit of tin, then, then it's a stronger product. This is, you know, coming out of this valley. So, like, uh, you know, this is like a kind of uh, an industrial center, you know, think like at Detroit, you know, the Detroit of the ancient world kind of thing. They're, they're, they're moving metal out of here in enormous uh, quantities. And it, it indicates, Drew, a, a very sophisticated, very wealthy, very um, technologically advanced uh, civilization going on here, uh, operating these mines right at the time that the Bible tells us that David and Solomon were reaching the height of their power, and, and under Solomon, the Israelites were at the center of an international empire. Wow, that is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, they, they found, um, you know, in this dig, uh, the discovery of a piece of wool that was dyed purple. I, I, the images are pretty amazing in this article. I know you've probably seen them as well. And that was considered major. And maybe let, let's, let's talk about that. Why would a, 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 dye, a purple dyed piece of wool be such a big deal? Yeah, purple was a very, very difficult color to produce especially to dye fabrics in that color in the ancient world, because the only source of purple was from sea snails that, uh, were, um, that lived or flourished on the shores of the Mediterranean. And you had to capture these snails. You got to, had to harvest them, and then you had to milk their glands uh, to get this um, substance. And it was only in very small quantities. So purple was just hugely, hugely expensive, Drew. And the only people that could afford, for example, an entire garment dyed purple 
would have had to been fabulously wealthy. And that's why it was associated with royalty. To this very day, we think of royal purple. Well, that goes all the way back yeah, at least 3,000 years, maybe farther than that, to the ancient world where it was just so hard to get purple dye that literally only the emperor or only the king would have the resources to get, say, an entire garment dyed in this color. So as you said, Drew, they found um, uh, fragments of purple cloth at this site, which means, you know, the king was here, basically somebody of extreme wealth, extreme status, some royal person was out there visiting this mine, you know, and we can conjure up pictures of, you know, King Solomon, you know, coming out uh, to inspect, hey, how are things going on these, this mining project that was an economic powerhouse, perhaps, for his kingdom? Yeah, well, you know, you and I have talked, gosh, over the years, Doctor, about all these new archaeological finds, you know, the walls that are discovered, um, you know, wool like this, you know, new mines, etc., the Davidic period, um, do we have enough evidence to know that that did indeed exist now and, and that Solomon did exist, that he was he was not myth? Because I, I know when this guy started out, when UFS started out, he stated something about archaeology that seemed obvious on the surface of it. I, I think it escaped a lot of people that there, he said, may not be evidence of the people of Israel for the simple fact that they primarily lived in tents. Um, what evidence do we have of the Israeli people? What evidence do we have of the Davidic period and Solomon and so much of what's contained in the Old Testament? Sure. Yeah, Drew, that's a great question. And um, since uh, since Ben Yosef, uh, the archaeologist we're talking about, started out his career in the 70s, we've accumulated uh, some very important finds that uh, confirm the, the biblical picture of a sophisticated, um, you know, empire that uh, was based in Israel uh, at the time of David and Solomon. Uh, we found David's name uh, on external archaeological record, um, like the te- what's called the Tel Dan Stele, uh, an inscription speaking about the house of David, referring to the kingdom of Judah uh, from the proper time period. We've also... Um, uh, excavated some administrative centers from the time period of David, a particular one at Tel Zayat, which is some miles from Jerusalem. And it was basically like an IRS, uh, you know, center, so to speak, right. where uh, taxes in kind with um, olive oil and wine, you know, basically taxing the farmers was all collected in this site and then administered on behalf of the kingdom. So, is it, you know, if you've got a tax structure going on and you've got tax collection centers, you know, you're not just a simple, uh, you know, survival, subsistence society, basically, Drew. So uh, this material is coming in um, and it's accumulating and it's, it's again, we're, we're undergoing right now a pendulum shift uh, back in the other direction, Drew, as people are beginning to realize, hey, you know, there's more to the Bible than we give it credit for. So, uh, final thoughts here, Doc. Um, what does this find? Uh, you know, what's to leave the world in a, a biblical archaeology right now? I mean, how does it impact it? Yeah, I think this find, Drew, together with finds that we've talked about before on the yep. show, like the absolutely astounding discoveries of Sodom and Gomorrah, with um, that heat glazing on those artifacts from that, you know, blast of heat from the sky that incinerated those cities uh, in the time period suggested by the scriptures, in the geographical location suggested by the scriptures. 
I think, you know, again, the accumulation of fines like this is, is making people rethink the kind of skepticism that got popular in the 70s and, and kind of has reigned for about 30 years or so. And I think that's starting to ebb as people realize yeah. the biblical authors were essentially honest people. Um, they were writing, uh, you know, real stories of their history of, and of their people's uh, interaction with God, and they weren't out to kind of deceive the world by making up myths. And uh, so I, I do think uh, it's it's doing um, a good bit to make people take uh, the scriptures more seriously for the way that they present themselves. Yeah. Well, Doctor, I'm always grateful for your time. And uh, thank you for the insight. It's always good to have you with us. Uh, JohnBergsman.com, best way to get a hold of him. Also, CatholicBibleTeacher.com. And, and, you know, before I let you go, one other little side note here, because you are an expert on the Dead Sea Scrolls, I'm assuming you heard about that story uh, regarding um, those Dead Sea Scrolls that many people thought were, were fakes that were um, just recently reported not to be. Who was the couple that bought them? You know, and they were, they, um, do you know who I'm talking about, Doc? Yeah, yeah, that's um, the Green family that set up Green, the, uh, a, yep. the the Museum of the Bible in in DC, and yep. um, yeah, that that is that's that's a great thing for for them and their family because they invested a lot of money, and uh, for a while there it was looking like uh, all of these were uh, fakes. So to have some confirmation of some of those, yeah, uh, great boon for them, and uh, we should be happy for exciting. Them. It's good stuff. We'll have yep. to talk more about it. But, hey, thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day. We'll catch up again soon, okay? Absolutely, Drew. Great to be out with you. That's Dr. John Bergsma. And, again, you can check him out at both of those websites. You know, today is another great day. It is the Feast of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. And she is, of course, the first American citizen to be canonized a saint, right? So we'll turn to her intercession coming up in about... 25 minutes as we pray the chapel of divine mercy. But if you're not familiar with her, let me just give you a quick snapshot. Uh, she founded the very first Catholic girls school in the country. It was located in Emmitsburg, Maryland. And then she founded the first religious congregation, the sisters of charity And her school. It was founded as the, uh, as the country was just still just getting started, right? It was in the midst of what was a very, uh, I, I guess, virulent anti-Catholic atmosphere at the time. Um, it was not a very Catholic friendly country. Um, but look, it didn't stop her. And she had this vision. She had this goal, this ideal of Catholic education ever since, uh, you know, well, it drove her to teach the, the truth, even in the middle of, of worldly disdain and opposition. And I think about her in light of our own times, you know, what a great patron, you know, to be able to teach the faith, uh, you know, right now, I think we need that more than ever. We need it in educating our children, whether it's at school, whether it's at home. Uh, we've got this onslaught right now, right, of this gender ideology. Our kids are being, you know, indoctrinated with critical race theory, the homosexual agenda, as well as all these other issues that are being brought on by the world. It's it's disorienting to our kids. There's a lot of confusion. Church is very clear, very loving, very compassionate on its teaching on a lot of these things. And I don't think it's a coincidence that in 1859, the mother of God herself appeared here in America, giving Sister Del Bryce a great mission to teach the faith in this wild frontier. That's a mission that you and I continue to carry on today. We have to teach the faith and we need it. If we want well-formed, a well-formed citizen, well-formed citizenry, I can get my tongue to work. You know, we need in Catholic education, um, good voices, good institutions, and we need to have that eternal and unchanging truth 
of who God is. That's the remedy for the problems of the world. And I'm delighted to have with me today Monsignor James Shea. He's the president of the University of Mary in Bismarck, North Dakota. Uh, he understands this better than most. He too, like uh, the great Saint, um, Saint Elizabeth Ann Seton, like Adele Bryce, like so many others, understands how important Catholic education is. He joins me this afternoon. Uh, Monsignor, thanks for your time. It's good to talk with you. Thanks for your patience. Happy New Year uh, to you, Drew, and happy feast to St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, a proud day for us as Americans. It, it certainly is. And, you know, I, I think the, one of the great problems in the culture today, I mean, we're battling this battle of ideology, really, on so many different levels, and it's infiltrating not just level, higher levels of institu- you know, yeah. educational institutions. It's, it's, it's down in our grade schools, these kids. It's coming out of our entertainment industry. Um, we need to be able to um, understand the truth, and it needs, in order to understand it, it needs to be taught clearly and, and definitively. Um, I, I love your take on this, because I know this is part of what your mis- mission and your ministry and your school is really all about. How does Catholic education... How does it stand up against the this onslaught today, and how have things changed? I mean, we know she, when Elizabeth Ann Seton lived, I mean, it was a, a very Protestant country. It was very anti-Catholic at that point in time. You know, his sister Adele lived in a time uh, in uh, Northeast Wisconsin where timber and lumber was big, and houses of prostitution were rampant, and you know, the faith was not necessarily being taught the way it should be. And and of course, she took that on as her mission. Right now, it seems like a lot of Catholic schools, especially on college and university levels, are giving into this 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 distorted ideology of what truth is and not standing up to it. G- give me your analysis of that, if you would. Yeah, well, so you point out that um, that other people in other times who have been faithful followers of Jesus have encountered darkness in their culture, and we have darkness in our time in our society today as well. And in every age, God calls forth his son's followers, disciples, Catholics in every age, are meant to shine more brightly in times of darkness. In other words, these challenging times in which we live are not completely novel. Uh, Since the fall, there's been darkness in the world uh, that we as children of light, as followers of Jesus, have been called to struggle against. And so we have, as you've pointed out, this luminous, luminous example today of uh, St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, the first American citizen uh, to be canonized. Um, and uh, here's a person who, um, uh, who, who lived in a time, you know, she knew anti-Catholicism from the inside out. She didn't grow up a Catholic. Uh, she grew up uh, in, in sort of the elite uh, of, the, of this country, and she converted to Catholicism later in her life, and then she founded the Catholic school system in this country uh, and a religious order for the teaching of children uh, in the faith, uh, the truths of the faith, but also all of the truths about the natural world. Uh, and, and one of the great accomplishments of the Catholic Church in the history of the world have been our educational accomplishments, and that's nowhere more apparent than here in the United States, where the Catholic Church has built, many times through the great labors of religious sisters, the most sophisticated and most impressive education system, K through 12, through college, through university, all the way from preschool to the doctorate, in many parts of this country you can get a Catholic education. And that's a tremendous, tremendous accomplishment. When we look, you asked specifically, Drew, about the the darkness with which we uh, struggle in our own time. 
and you mentioned some of the great uh, and dangerous, dangerous ideologies. An ideology is nothing but an idea about how reality could be or should be that doesn't really correspond with the true nature of the human person. In other words, it's a false vision of human nature. And uh, if you ask about whether our Catholic schools, particularly our Catholic universities, because as president of the University of Mary, I spend all my time thinking about our responsibility in respect to the training of young people. If you, if you ask what the role of Catholic education is in terms of resisting some of these very pernicious and dangerous ideas about human nature, it's a role which is actually quite substantive. And the reason is that many of these ideas, the majority of them, arose in the university context to begin with. In other words, things like uh, critical race theory um, and uh, uh, gender ideology, um, uh, the homosexual agenda, uh, as you, these are some of the things that you mentioned. Very often, if you, if you scratch the surface and go into the history of these things, many of the most dangerous ideas were cooked up were born in the context of universities, whether it was French universities in the middle of the 19th century or uh, secularized universities here in this country, oftentimes those ideas find their basis and their origin in the academy. And then they eventually make their way out into the mass media, into the sort of ambient culture, into politics, into education at, at other levels, at K through 12 and begin uh, to really corrupt the culture. And overall, Drew, I would say that, that it's a dangerous time for which the Catholic message of the search for truth, uh, the, 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 the unrelenting, charity-filled, loving, but firm search for truth um, is more important than ever. It's just, it, it's, 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 a time in which that has to happen because we live in a time, and I've said this many times before, but I never forget about it. We live in a time in which everything is allowed and nothing is forgiven. One of, everything is allowed, but nothing is forgiven. So it is forgiven. And so as a result, we live in a time with no mercy. And so you have these, you know, wokeism has uh, this cancel culture, which is a kind of social excommunication for having the wrong ideas. Well, that has nothing to do with the search for truth, and it has nothing to do uh, with the ethos of Catholic education. So there's a deep role. I don't know if I've answered your question well, Drew, but there's a deep role for Catholic education to play because within the sophistication and the, the depth and the ballast and the strength of our institutions of higher learning, we can come up with the antidote uh, and the response to, the adequate response to the roots of some of these really terrible ideologies. Yeah, I, I, it's, I think it's incredibly well said and then on point, Monsignor, and I'm grateful for it. If you want to join the conversation, I'm going to open the phones to you too. The number's 888-914-9149. Feel free to share your own experience or go ahead and... Uh, Sound off. You know, you want to got a question or a comment? Uh, I'll open the phone, take your calls in a second. I got to take a, a break in just a quick second here, Monsignor. But just following up on on what you said, uh, you know, the renewal of schools like yours, they've come about, I think, largely because of the effort of the leaders, people like you and and, and others who understand the role and the importance of what that institution can do, not just for the students but for the community and really the nation at large. Can renewal come about? from the ground up 
Does it come from the faculty, the staff? You know, uh, who? Where do the seeds of those saying we need to be faithful to the truth come from? I mean, how does that seed get planted and ultimately watered? Well, I, I do think that there are grassroots efforts that bring about great change all over the place. At the same time, leadership really is essential. In other words, um, from my vantage here at the University of Mary, so much of our renewal has come because I and my faculty have a vision for the which is which isn't sort of uh, naive about the real struggle and challenge and fight that we face. Now, we don't want to be grouchy people. <laughs> we don't want to be angry and and uh, and constantly doomsday or cynical about uh, the challenges that we face. We're cheerful warriors, but we're not afraid to or not surprised by the fight. And so I do think that renewal can come both from the ground up and from the top down, but it needs to be rooted in Jesus Christ and in his hope it can't be that we're replacing a bad ideology with right. an ideology which is still an ideology, but which is a little bit less bad. We need to really root ourselves deeply in the truth, and that truth is that God has conquered the world, and we need to share that mm-hmm. truth with everybody. Hey man, my guest today, Monsignor James Shea, I'm going to take a short pause. We'll be right back when we do. John in Fontana, California. You are on deck. We'll take all your calls. The number is 888 in about 10 or 15 minutes, we'll gather together. We'll pray. We'll pray for our country. We'll pray for this great deception that seems to be infecting, you know, so much of the ideology our kids are being exposed to. And uh, we'll pray for one another. So feel free to, to join us. I'll be back with more right after this. Stay with me. Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio Studio line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, visit relevantradio.com slash Forrester. She became not only the mother of her kids, but the mother of the sisters in her community. She was a woman of faith. She was a searcher. She was someone who showed that the great American virtues of industry, of common sense, of relentlessness, can be sanctified in a way that changes the world. She was the first American-born saint. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. And she, of course, is the great Saint Elizabeth Ann Seton today. First American citizen to be canonized, raised to the altars. We remember her on her feast day. We'll turn to her in a few minutes in the the chat. But right now, I'm speaking to another great educator, Monsignor James Shea. And he's been a great friend of the show, too. Hails from a great institution. And I'd strongly encourage that you check it out. You can check out comethemary.com. It's an easy way to remember it. Or youmary.edu. And I'll put a quick plug in for it. And not only is the education off the charts, it's stellar, it's rock solid, it's orthodox. But when you check out the cost, it's insane. I mean, it really is incredibly affordable. I think it's the most affordable Catholic education you're going to find anywhere in the country. And Monsignor, it's good to have you. Thanks for making Catholic education affordable because I know at the lower levels sometimes, the grade schools and even the high schools, uh, that could be equivalent to a, a college education in some cases. So your institution's doing a real service to the country, and I'm grateful for it. Uh, let's do this. Well, we, you... Go ahead, Monsignor. No, no, I was just going to say we think it's a moral imperative. We have so many people with big families who want to send their kids to a Catholic university. And if we don't make it affordable, they're not able to do that. So it's important. 
All right. And that's, again, come to Mary.com or youmary.edu. John in Fontana, good afternoon. It's good to have you with us. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I was just curious of Monsignor's thoughts on why if I feel like the transgender movement is just raging <laughs> and why why it's, it feels it's so popular right now. Is it just a sign of the times or or hmm. what? Well, John, I think that there are many answers that we could give to that, um, and it's, a, it's an important question. What we're seeing is, you know, as we were saying before the break, there are these ideologies that work their, ways, that work their way out in response to perceived or real injustices, but which attach themselves to really bad ideas about the human person. And what we see in the transgender movement uh, is uh, a really unfortunate development which arises out of the sexual revolution, you know, which arose, as all of us know, uh, in the aftermath of the, the 1960s, uh, in which we've got all kinds of things which, you know, of course it was supposed to throw off all the shackles of, of uh, sort of uh, restrictive morality and give us the promise of free love and all of that. But what we've seen are the ravages of uh, broken families, broken marriages, abortion, uh, and then we see a lot of uh, gender confusion as a result of that yeah. as well. And so it's also rooted, I would say, in a, in a false sense of, um, of compassion, because there are people uh, in the world uh, who, who suffer very deeply internally and psychologically with a sense of confusion, uh, and disorientation uh, regarding their own identity as male or as female. Uh, and because we don't, in our society and in our culture, have uh, strong ways to reinforce that, that becomes even more difficult. And so I think that, um, that it's a convergence of a whole bunch of different things in the culture, and it's a sign uh, that we need to stay as close to God and His truth and his truth as we possibly can. That's a simple answer to a complex question. Yeah, no doubt about it. Well, thank you for for that call. You know, and as you point out, you know, Catholic education has been on the forefront of um, so many uh, great, uh, you know, uh, what am I thinking of? Uh, oh, not industries, but to, you take not just education, you know, medicine. You take a look at literature. You take a look at the role that... Yeah. Catholic education has played and safeguarded and advanced. I mean, we've been leaders in all that, astronomy, whole litany of things right now. We need it. Uh, but I think more than ever today, Monsignor, we need a well-formed citizenry, and I think we're in a moral uh, deficit, yes. a moral dilemma right now more than ever. And I think it's due to a lack of, of reason, lack of rationality. Um, a lot of this falsehood and deceptive uh, type of ideology is being taught, and unfortunately, I, I, don't, I don't understand how it's accepted. You know, I, I don't know how people throw out facts and reason, but, uh, you know, I, I think if if we don't get it right, then we're going to be in trouble. But I, I do think we're going to get it right. I know you're hopeful, too. Um, what do you see yeah. for the future of the country and, and, and how do we make sure that we're able to well form um, get our kids well formed? Well, Pope St. John Paul II wrote uh, an apostolic constitution for Catholic universities called Ex Corde Ecclesiae, which means from the heart of the church. In it, he said that Catholic universities have an obligation to uh, consecrate themselves without reserve to the cause of mm. truth. 
Uh, and so the search for truth, not for sort of emotional satisfaction, not for uh, perceived justice, but for real truth, the truth about the human person, the truth about justice. In other words, what is rightly owed uh, to each other here among us in society, what we adequately and really truly owe to ourselves and what's owed to God as well in the in the drama of every human life and in the drama of every society, uh, that's a question uh, which is particularly within the domain of Catholic education, yeah. both at the elementary level and at the yeah. secondary level, and then also in a very special way at the level of higher education. Yeah. And so good training in sound thinking will help us to navigate through all of these very difficult yeah. uh, questions uh, and it's it's irreplaceable. We yeah. we really do because thinking, clear thinking, is not uh, where much of this is coming from. It's coming yeah. instead from an an emotional response, yeah. uh, which is rooted in ideology, and that's that's a great um, it's a great uh, challenge for us. I will say just this: yeah. you you talked about the the vast and breathtaking cultural achievements and contributions of Catholicism. Yeah. That's not over. In other words, we still have an awful lot to offer to the world through our institutions and our parishes and Catholic charities, and we need to continue to do that to, to, to teach the truth in love. I love that. Uh, well said again. Thank you, Monsignor. Let's go to Onalaska, Wisconsin. Mark wants to join the conversation. Mark, hi, you're on the air with Monsignor Shank. Thanks, Drew. Love your show. Monsignor, I've, I've listened to you several times, and uh, so I, as a father of nine children, uh, love mm. the concept of what you're doing. So I kind of have a two-part question. Number one, uh, I just I love the beautiful statement that you just said, that the focus really has to be on the truth, mm-hmm. and especially involving the secondary education. And we've had our kids in Catholic schools and would love to keep our kids in Catholic schools, but we found that the secondary education, mm-hmm. at least in our area, but to many other families that we've talked to, it's really just public school. So now I'm paying up to 9000 a year for my high school kids wow. for a watered-down Catholic education. And I'd like to know your thoughts on that. And then number two, how are you able to do what you do with the imperative being that you know state schools receive so much government funding? I just love that you're able to accomplish this. Yeah without having any ties held to you. I hate to do this, Monsignor. you got a minute. That's all. Yep, okay. So, so then very quickly, Mark, these are great questions. Number one, you know, I taught in a Catholic school, uh, Catholic secondary school, and it was in need of quite, of a, quite a bit of renewal and reform, and I was really grateful for Catholic parents uh, who sent their children to the schools, who stepped up and supported me as a chaplain and, and as a teacher so that we could get that renewal done. Uh, and I think par- parents need to be discerning. You don't want uh, your children in a lukewarm Catholic school, but you do want to be part of the solution. There's a lot more to say there. And second of all, in terms of how we're able to keep our prices low without a huge amount of state support, we have amazing people who support us. And also, we're very, we run a lean operation. In other words, we don't have a lot of overhead in administration because we think that if we have any extra money at all, we need to sock it into what can best help well, the students to love and to know God. That's University of Mary. That's uh, come to Mary.com. Check it out.